This is CliffCentral.com. Good morning. Welcome to Opinion Booth with myself, Sonia Booth. And uh, those uh, two songs were a tribute to my guest who's on her way here today. Today's title, today's topic is Beauty and the Brain. Once I've uploaded her picture and the podcast on our website, you'll get to see why the title an incredibly intelligent woman. I'm going to ask her about her IQ level when she gets here. Her name is Dr. Tabi Leoka. She's an economic strategist, contributor to ver- uh, various local and international publications, which include Money Marketing, Sunday Times, and Bricks Post. Those obviously have got to do with the economy and all things economics. She was recently honored with the Economist of the Year Award by ABSIP, which is the Association of Black Securities and Investment Professionals. Now, I know Tabby is listening to the show as she's driving here from a very, very important uh, meeting. As you know, economists are very busy at this particular point um, in our lives. When you look at the economy of our country, after all, we are junk status. But I mean, that's for Tabby to break it down for us as soon as she arrives here. She should be here in about five minutes. So what she doesn't know, and obviously now she's going to know because I know she's listening, is that a surprise for her is that I got two of her closest friends, Pumla and Pamela, to record messages, um, positive words of encouragement, um, and to try and get us to know Tabi as they know her, and the rest of us know her as Dr. Tabi Lioka. Well, I'm close enough to call her Tabi. But um, let's listen in to um, voice notes from Pumla and Pamela. Hi, Sonia. Molo Tabi. This is Pam Pitti from Entata. Thank you for having me on your show, Sonia. Uh, I met Tabby back in high school 25 years ago. For as long as I have known Tabby, she has always been ambitious, focused, and hardworking. Not only is she super intelligent, what people may not know about Tabby is that she excelled in sports in high school. Tabby could have been an equally accomplished sportswoman. What I love the most about Tabi is that despite all her accomplishments, all her world travels, she has not lost herself. She is not jaded by life at all. Utabi remains humble. She lives life to the fullest. She's fun-loving. There's nothing superficial about Utabi. What you see is what you get. Um, from New York to Iran to Kunu, from sports field, social gatherings to boardroom to parliament, Tabi remains grounded. As a mother to two young girls, I can only hope they and many other young women and girls like Tabi can understand the value of hard work humility, and that whatever they set their mind to, they can accomplish without compromising who they are. Hello, Sonia and Tabi. This is Pamela. I'm calling in from uh, Brooklyn, New York, uh, which also happens to be Tabi's favorite city. Uh, so I've known Tabi for a long, long time. I mean, I met her in high school. Um, that is in Serpent's High School back when we were young. <laughs> Um, 
for her to be on this platform that she's sitting on today, I must say I'm extremely proud of her. I'm proud of her to call her my friend. And I'm also proud of the hard work that she's put throughout life to be where she is. So for all the young girls out there, she's a very good example of what it is uh, to put in uh, work and what you achieve at the end of it. Like you can't expect to wake up one day and have everything that you, you want to achieve, which is whatever it may be in your uh, field, which is your career, your um, to, in order to achieve money and status. You have to work hard at a career. She's always been a very focused and very determined person, especially when it came to her career, to be able to move forward and be where she is. And she's worked uh, a lot in a very male-dominated and very cutthroat industry where you have to know what you're doing. And she's been able to succeed and be where she is. Anyway, that's just my um, uh, brief note about Tavi. Uh, I wish I could be there with you guys. Uh, and uh, thanks for having me on the show. Bye. Oh, that's so sweet. I know, I know. <laughs> Pleasant surprise, obviously. Very. Ah, look, she's blushing. <laughs> All the way from Brooklyn. Thank you, Pamela. That is so, so sweet. Did you get to hear the one from uh, Pamela as well? Yes. Okay. Pam. Ah, oh, that's so, so sweet. <laughs> Ladies, Pumla, Pamela, if you're listening, I know you're listening, but um, you, you've made a woman blush today. And I mean, to make someone uh, of uh, Tabby's caliber to, to blush uh, is, is not an easy feat. I asked her to give me her top five favorite songs. And I can't say I was surprised at the list. As you've heard from a few that I've played, each different from the other, um, and clear indication of a global citizen. Dr. Tabi Leoga, welcome to Opinion Brief. Thank you. Thank you so much. I know you rushed here, right? Rushed. Yeah. But I made it. <laughs> I know. I'm so happy. I am so happy. She rushed from a, from, be, a, yeah. from a very, very important uh, meeting. I, kn- I know you are hectic. I know your schedule is like ridiculous. It and I is. know that you spend more time outside of South Africa than you do here in your own country. <laughs> so you listen to the show as you were driving here. I remember... The modeling days. Mm. <laughs> she would sit quietly in a corner waiting for her turn at auditions. She always had her books and textbooks. Even between rehearsals for a fashion show, she would sit between clothing rails and study while the rest of us were on our phones or talking nonsense or gossiping. You knew she was destined for greater heights. She wasn't your typical model. She kills the stereotype and perceptions that models are dumb. Do your colleagues know you are a model or do you wish that part of your life would just evaporate or erase from your profile? So not many people know, but um, I don't wish it away. I think that it was a very important part of my upbringing. Um, Modeling actually paid for my undergrad and then I got a scholarship for my honors and master's. It also helped me with my confidence. I was actually very shy, and believe it or not, because I'm not anymore. (laughs) I was very shy up until I think I was 25. And so it gave me um, self-confidence. It, I've always loved fashion. So I think it, it tapped into that part of me. Uh, the love, you know, I love fashion. I love clothes. I still follow a lot of models on Instagram and I like the way, um, 
you know, I guess models interpret fashion differently. And, uh, and also, you know, whether fortunately or unfortunately, it works for me because I'm actually, you know, I'm on the, more on the small side. But, um, it helps me also understand how to put, uh, clothes together. And so that's why I love following models. I, I, I love clothes. I love shopping. And, and I guess, you know what? I've always thought, yes, I'm an economist and yes, I studied uh, up until, you know, PhD level. But, um, we do always stereotype people and we think that you will, you are one thing and your route is just one directional. And I, you know, I think the best people for me, even from friends are those who've had a different lifestyle and, um, and have a different background to mine, uh, and have experienced many things in life. I think that they are more interesting. So they can talk about how they were artists and then how they ended up here as whatever they are uh, in life or, or uh, their journeys are interesting. And those who've just had one a linear journey, those ones tend to be a little bit more boring and more normal. And uh, their contribution to, to, I guess, life is very um, singular. You are not a typical economist. I'm sure you've heard that before. Um, no offense, but a lot of economists, just like accountants, are known to be on the stiff side. You know, like they're too serious. They take themselves too seriously. And I laugh when I read your Twitter bio. And it goes on to say, tweets <laughs> like my brain in brackets are my own, not that of my employer. <laughs> I love your sense of humor. It's, it's refreshing to find an academic of your caliber with a great sense of humor. Yeah, it goes back to, you know, I, we're all, I guess, different. And I think I'm loving the younger generation too, because I'm coming from a generation where, uh, you don't have to be dull and a boring economist to be an economist. Um, you can, you're many things on weekends when it's hot, you can wear your hot pants and a vest and go to, uh, downtown Maboneng. That doesn't mean that you're not an economist. Um, and I guess also, I think it's a very South African thing that people associate what you do at work to who you are. And I'm so many other things. So work is work and my profession is my profession, but I, there's so many other things that I enjoy and uh, that I am. And um, I express that a lot. I mean, you are so well accomplished. I mean, I'm sure your CV or profile is probably like going over 50 pages, right? No. <laughs> it's, it's probably like a book on its own. You started out with a BA in honest in international economics and trade uh, from Wirtz University, yeah. where you graduated first class and were a recipient of a merit award. You went on to graduate with a UK master's in international um, economics. You have a master's and PhD in social science majoring in economics from the London School of Economics. Yeah. How does it feel to be referred to as doctor? Tell me about that moment where people, when they referred to you, were had to write doctor before yeah. your name and when you book in, um, at, when you check in at the airport and, you know, some of us just have normal names and no titles before our names. But then that moment when you first saw doctor on a letterhead or business card. Yeah, it's very interesting. So when I started in undergrad, I actually almost failed. I was um, almost kicked out of it and they had to call my mother uh, to say, look, we please justify the two of you justify why we should 
allow you to do first year again. And what happens is that you take some courses that are first year that you've passed and then um, some, I mean, that, that so you take first year courses and some second year courses that you've moved on to. And so I didn't have the best academic results. It's only later on that I thought, actually, I'm, this academia thing is 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 you know it's it's working out the um, i guess also my maturity too and how i uh, started looking at um school in a different way versus maybe when i was first year and i socialized more i sat on the lawns and on the senate house staircase without actually going to the library and doing my work and so the higher i went the better i got and Funny enough, you have to ask my mom. She'll tell you that after my first uh, degree, I said, actually, just before my first degree, I said, I'm never setting foot at a university again. This is it. I'm done. And then I got a good grade and I thought, okay, maybe let me do an honors and then let me do a master's. And I kept on getting higher and higher uh, grades. And the other strange thing about, so I got a first class pass for my master's. And when you got it, when you get a distinction, the government actually gives you money. So I didn't know this because I worked for a while and then I went to London. So I didn't actually, I only went to one graduation. I was just like, okay, this is, this, this ceremony thing is very boring. And so I didn't, I later found out like much later on that I, as an, Two years ago, I found out that I have um, um, I was awarded with a merit award, and that's because I didn't go to my graduation. I didn't know uh, <laughs> that I was I was I was given a merit award, and then I um, got money, and I got the check two years ago, January, from like almost twenty years ago. Wow! From it. <laughs> Okay. Yes. So, um, yeah, so that's my academic story. Then, you know, at LSE, um, it was also very challenging, very great experience. Um, but then I started working at Barclays afterwards and everybody had a PhD in my team. So it, the novelty kind of wore off because it almost was like a standard. And, um, you, you know, most economists overseas don't use the doctor name. And again, I also always, during my studies, I always th- thought to myself, look, everyone is going to call me doctor. And I remember even saying, when I get married, I'm going to be like doctor and mister, you know. <laughs> and then, um, and my friends would laugh because I would be the doctor marrying the mister. And then I just kind of wears off. Once you finish your degree, you're like, actually, the doctor thing is not really used. And I find it quite uncool. Um, so and I, every time I see somebody using the doctor, I was like, oh, um, it's very, I guess, an African thing to do. Because everywhere else, you know, Ben Bernanke, who was the governor of the uh, Fed, uh, is Ben Bernanke. And uh, Janet Yellen is Janet Yellen, is not doctor or um You know, all the great economists are never doctor so-and-so unless they're in academia, whether doctor or professor. Uh, That talks of your humility, I think. Uh, You know, personally, I would insist that everybody (laughs) refers to me as doctor, even my close friends. It's like, I've earned it. It wasn't easy getting a PhD, sweetheart. I insist on doctor. But also, you know, you've got the the medical doctors who are not the PhD doctors because it's always, we always have this thing that I always tell the medical doctors that you're not the doctor, actually, until you, because with medicine, you can also study PhD in medicine and then you're a doctor. Yes. So the doctor is the term that they use for people who 
uh, are in that profession. So I will say, no, you're not the real doctor. We are, but I guess it's, they can, they usually use the doctor name and it's also quite confusing because even I use it only in certain places. So when I book a, uh, an airline ticket Then I would say doctor And sometimes it works Sometimes they like Bump you up and First class Because we all yeah. know like business class right <laughs> Not really And then they also bump you Like in certain events um, Where uh, You know It is I guess useful to use doctor Then I'd use it mm, To your advantage Yeah I imagine your parents Are the proudest parents Out there They are They are you obviously haven't been told that it's a crime to be this beautiful and bright. No, I, I actually, I think there's so many beautiful people who are. I think that's a fallacy that you can't be beautiful and smart. Mm. And I'm sure people yeah. look at you and they think, "Oh, she's so dumb," until you open your mouth and then they think, "Wow, Sonia is actually smart." They, it is this, you know, there's a, this belief that you need to be, um, you know, if you're really smart, you need, you can't be pretty. Mm. You can't be beautiful. Mm. Uh, and it's actually not the case. I mean, if you look at Michelle Obama, who I idolize, I think she's gorgeous and she's so, you know, give you know, she's 50 mm. and look at, you know, look at her. She looks amazing. And there's so many beautiful people who are super smart. You're right. You. Pumla Majola Cohen and Pamela Pitti have shared stories on what you got up to at St. Cyprian's. Can you share some of those memories? I know some people might not know that you used to jump the wall um, in boarding school when you were supposed to be studying. That's them. And I was the nerdy one that apparently I told on everyone. Oh, so you never jumped the walls no. at night to go look for a party elsewhere? Never. So there was this big, and I, you know, it's such a, I, I think that there are people who, Lefts and sips who think that I told on. So a few, uh, students boarding at boarding school jumped, uh, the walls. They had, uh, a guy pick them up to go to a party and it happened twice. And the second time a whole host of people got, um, kicked out of school. They were expelled from school and some were led back. But I, I, you know, the, so the, there were only like two of us or three of us who were, who were there at boarding school. And, uh, they then suspected that we were the ones that told. But they forgot that actually there were other students who were, um, not boarders, who were also at these parties who saw the boarders and they told on. So I'm certain that till this day, there are students who think that <laughs> I told on. That you're a snitch. That I snitched on. And, um, for a long time, it was, it was quite difficult actually, because even those that came back, they were very, uh, mean to me. There was a lot of bullying that happened because they thought that I had, um, snitched. And I didn't even know that this happened because it happened when we were sleeping. Hmm. I know, uh, I can only imagine. I, I can't say I know because I don't have a PhD. Obtaining it takes dedication, hard work, and perseverance. Tell me about the challenges that you were faced with and that you had to endure to get to actually getting that qualification. Yeah. So I think it's it's better when you do it uh, as a married person or when you have a partner. 
And I know it's going to sound very strange, but here's the thing. You need that support from someone and someone to encourage you and keep you going. And when you're alone, because I went, I moved to the UK at 24. I didn't know anyone. I left there for 10 years. Um, so no family, no, um, I had friends initially who were from South Africa, uh, but for the most part, you're studying alone. And so it is very, very lonely. It is also, um, can get tedious. You have like mental blocks a lot to the point where you can't even construct one sentence. So you have days where you're supposed to write chapters, but you actually can't even write a sentence. So you are staring into your pages and not doing anything or staring into a computer and nothing. And all you're doing is looking at your computer and going for uh, a meal and then coming back to to stare. So it's a very lonely, you need someone to encourage you, someone to, um, someone to give you reasons for, to continue. And nothing is that the UK is very expensive. And so, you know, I was one of the poorest students in a very wealthy um, school. And so I didn't do a lot of what the, you know, my classmates organized, like they'd go for group dinners and group lunches. And my budget wasn't big enough for any of that. Actually, that was the poorest I've ever been. So I, you know, it was to the point where it was either do I walk or do I take a bus? Because, I mean, oh, and then taking a bus means that my lunch will be different. Uh, I either, you know, I'm very thankful to the Hare Krishnas because they used to offer free food on campus and the food was, just, you know, I'm a carnivore and, um, so Hare Krishnas don't need meat. Though it was a lot of vegetables, but it was well cooked. So I survived on Hare Krishna food. And so it was, it was, I guess, life changing and shaping and, um, uh, you become very humble and you just focus on what you're there to do. Once you start and it changes so quickly and, you know, you don't believe anyone who says this during that moment. Um, and then once you finish, you are, you know, I worked for Barclays and you start getting a salary and you start um, affording some of the luxury goods that you used to walk past or you used to try on, you used to go to Selfridges and just try on this very expensive dress and just dream and then take it off and walk out as if, you know. My first, oh, I need to tell you the story. So one of my, the first stores that I walked into at, um, when I was a student was De Beers. And I walked there, I was very cocky, uh, not cocky in a bad way, like as in more arrogant and confident. You know, usually when you walk into these stores, they look at you thinking, okay. Size you are. Yeah. Yeah. And I had, I still had like my, my clothes from South Africa, my winter clothes, which were not sufficient, um, to, you know, warm me up. And so I looked like, I guess I looked, you know, I had this big brown jacket that I bought from Statterford's back in the days. And then, um, so I walked in there and the lady like looks at me thinking, okay, you know, give me that look almost as if to say, no beggars are. <laughs> But I was so confident and cocky because I was thinking De Beers is like South African. It's like it's a family business. Yes. So, you know, I don't care who you are, but I'm here to check out the family jewels. So I had that. <laughs> I tried on rings. I, you know, and I know nothing about diamonds, even to this day. But I tried out all rings and she was explaining and I, I dropped names. I was like, yeah, 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 Jonathan Oppenheimer. And yeah, yeah, I'm from <laughs> South Africa. So she kind of like, you know, then she looked at me like, I don't know who she is. She could be somebody because she's dropping all the right names. Yes. So that was me. <laughs> uh -huh. Couldn't even afford like, 
Um, yeah, not even, I don't know, the smallest item at De Beers, but I managed to do that. And now you can buy uh, De Beers franchise if, if they no, want one. not yet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's trying to be humble. So tell me, what was your thesis or dissertation on? So I looked at capital flows and currency crisis in emerging markets. So I've always focused on emerging markets. And um, because I guess South Africa is also an emerging markets and a market, and we we compare ourselves to countries that are like us, so Brazil, um, Chile, uh, Turkey, Russia, China. And at that time, it was I looked at a lot of the 2001 financial crisis that happened in South Africa, but really a lot of um, it was it was. Um, South America, Latin South America, where the epicenter of the crisis was, and we got um, hit by it. We also had our own issues then that made us very vulnerable um, to the financial crisis. So I looked at all those that dynamic, and interestingly, we haven't really come out of because two thousand and eight nine we had another financial crisis, but this time it was an emerging market one. It was more a U.S. UK, uh, EU uh, UK um, crisis, but which impacted on. South Africa because of our close uh, ties and linkages with with Europe. Tell me about your support structure. I mean, be it the person that um, acted as your supervisor during your studies, um, yeah. your study group, etc. It was very interesting. So I, I had a lot, like a lot of friends who were my support structure. But again, you know, you are writing alone, so you can't. It's not a group effort. Uh, it's not like an MBA where you're set up in groups to solve an issue or problem. Um, it, it was it was my, I think I had good friends, but also my, I guess, I, I, my resilience. Because even when, even with my parents, I don't think they got it until much later on. So they weren't, and they're far too. So you can only speak to them on the phone. And this was pre-FaceTime. Uh, and yes. I mean, it was during Skype days. And my parents didn't understand Skype. Um, and actually in South Africa, then having Wi-Fi was very rare, Wi-Fi at home. So a lot of it was calls, quick calls, because it was very expensive to call um, South Africa. And so they didn't really get it. And also because they... I guess they couldn't even get my subject too. I don't even think they know what what my topic was. And um, so they can't even say, you know, why don't you focus on this or I read something or here's a literature review. So they were there in terms of just quick messages, but you spend a lot of time alone and kind of pep talking you. You know, you just have to tell yourself that you have to pull through. You have to pull through. Your supervisor was always also very supportive, uh, but he's supervising three other students. Mm. So, and he's not there to be uh, a nanny. So you either have to, I guess, put your big panties, big girl panties on and say, look, I'm going to carry on and keep on moving. Absolutely. You sit on the management committee at your company. Yeah. Tell me about the challenges faced as a young woman in such a high-profile, high-ranking position in a male-dominated industry. It's always been challenging, and not just in my company, but everywhere else. I think, firstly, um, I always, I always say it is very challenging being a black woman. Uh, well, a black person, a woman, um, young, young, and also when you're perceived to be younger than you are. That is also my my big challenge. I remember when I moved here, I worked for Standard Bank, and my boss then said, "Don't you want to wear glasses or something <laughs> to make you look 
you know, older than you really, uh, younger than you really are, because no one will believe you at face value. Um, then I said, no, why? You know, I the, the beauty industry is a billion and odd dollars and people are paying to look younger. And you're telling me that I must make myself look old um, so that it's palatable for for clients so the clients can feel comfortable with me um so that's that was the that's always been a challenge and you know it is only when people say to me it's only when i open my mouth that they believe my age that usually they don't believe um my age until i open my mouth and they realize actually she's not she's not sounding as young as she looks Mm. Uh, and then they become comfortable but it is you know as a as a black woman, there's so much to this. I guess this, you're always on the battlefield. Uh, you always have to make, you know, you making sure that people are comfortable with you, making sure that you are, um, people acknowledge that you are smart or believe that you are smart, making sure that you're not a bimbo and, um, uh, making sure that, uh, people don't talk over you, which usually men do. Um, so there's just always, you know, there's, it's always a fight um, from all fronts, and um, you just have to keep on going, or else you just you don't succeed. Unfortunately, that's the only way to succeed in this life is actually to keep on breaking barriers and stand your ground. Stand your ground, and you may be seen and and uh, to be aggressive, and people may be critical, but actually you must stand your ground. And um, it's not always easy. I've left jobs because. They haven't been, um, you know, I felt that I was either window dressing or they thought that I'm. So that's another thing that uh, I, I think it's a very a South Africa problem currently because you hear a lot of people saying we need a woman. We need a woman. We need a woman. We, you know, we need a woman on our board. We need a woman on our. Do you, no, you don't need a woman necessarily. You need a smart person and a smart person comes women are smart too so you know rather go with what um you need in terms of what addition that person will bring to your company and rather than just saying you need a woman because it's almost like you need an ornament um so it's all five guys and then you need a woman and that person comes in there and starts speaking and then suddenly it's like oh she speaks we didn't want her to speak (laughs) It and, speaks. Yeah. And then it becomes, you know, headbutting. And I've been in those situations where, um, you're called onto an ESCO or you're invited. And as women, because we haven't been, you know, we all want to sit at the table. We all want to be part of the boys club. Uh, and when it's a big endorsement, because suddenly you're sitting with the boys, but then you also have to ask yourself, am I, what is my contribution to this? Um, you know, to, am I there to just be a pretty face and to tick the BE score or am I there to actually make a contribution? And also I think it's a woman's responsibility to bring other women there so that it doesn't become, um, you're the only woman and then they can, you know, the men can just walk all over you or treat you like an ornament. The more we are, the more then men realize that actually we're not just there to be the only woman because they need a woman as a, as a requirement that you need to have women, um, for because women contribute as as much sometimes more than men um because they bring also a different perspective because they have different also experiences just like men um and because i you know studies have been made about how rational women are and how sometimes women take a longer time to 
to interrogate because they, they, they want to make sure that something is right, whereas men are, uh, are very quick to make a decision without actually looking at the pros and cons. That's, uh, those are very important traits, both of them, because some things need to be interrogated longer. Some decisions need to be made quicker. So I think the balance of having both women and men is very um, advantageous for, for companies, and many companies don't realize this. Do you think we'll reach a point in our lifetime where women's salaries match up with their male counterparts or colleagues? I ask because the gender pay gap uh, statistics are alarming, if not shocking. Yeah, I think, you know, we can only as women talk about it and talk about it and force issues and and make sure that um, we are heard. But it's actually up to men to also say, guys, this is rubbish. We can't have women... Um, earn less than us. Uh, I say this also with race. That yes, black people we can we can talk about it and talk about it and highlight it. But really, it's other people. It's you know white people who need to say, guys, we need to really be cognizant and aware and sensitive of certain situations. So again, I think that men need to be, to realize the importance of having uh, fairness and equity. Um, you know, it's. It's interesting because we relate, men and women are relate in many instances where, for instance, in marriage, it is important to have both men and women earning a big salary. The household income then increases. The pressure on men to bring home the bacon, so to speak, is reduced. So there's a lot of, you know, it's, it's, there's a lot of good that comes out of having a, you know, equal pay for men and women. Um, it also societally we it then reduces or eradicates this problem of women depending on men, women doing you know selling their souls or you know doing certain things to attract men so that they can get money. It also then on the men's side that taking advantage of young women um, will also be I don't say eradicated, but at least it will be um, lessened when a woman is knows her position and uh, earns as much as a, a man does. You're a high achiever. You're self-made. You are very independent. I imagine you intimidate a lot of men who even just think about asking you out on a date. Well, the guys that I intimidate are the guys that are not for me. Or the guys who are intimidated by me. Um, I, I think those who are not are more interesting to me, uh, because it does, it's, it, it speaks to their self-confidence and their self-awareness. Uh, those who are intimidated, it would never work because obviously they are, um, insecure and not self-assured. Um, so, so it, it kind of, yes, it, it makes, it would be easier if I was 23 meeting a guy than because I had less to offer. Um, then I'd also be less, um, I, I guess when you're younger, you're, you're less, you, you don't have as many requirements. Uh, but I think it, it actually works perfectly now because I can choose the person who is right for me. Absolutely. Uh, rather than settling for someone and, um, Having some accommodating someone's ego out of desperation, yeah, or just because other women are married or you know they've got partners and all that. I like that. Do you think we will have a female president in our lifetime? And if so, who would you propose as a candidate? Yeah, you know, I I don't think uh, having a female president is not important to me. 
having the best president is important to me, regardless of who it is. So you, you could get that actually maybe women don't want to be presidents. They want to be CEOs and, um, and want to lead certain organizations because there's only one president and maybe a certain guy uh, or a series of guys want to be and they've groomed themselves to be to, to become the president but if there is a woman who becomes who wants to be and has the right characteristics and has what it takes to be a, a female president i'm all for that person but not because of her gender but what, what she will offer um and and whether she's a good fit for the country it's a difficult one now because i don't know if you know apart from the current um you know, person or lady who's who's put her name forward, and that's actually you've got two. That's Nkosazana Lamini Zumara and Lindy Wesisulu, who I don't think personally are would be my choice. Um, and here's why: I think that you don't wake up one day to say and say you want to be a leader, and then put yourself the next day as a candidate, and then you become the president. I, if you read Obama's story and if you read great leaders, it is something that they have wanted for a very long time. And so they have made sure that every step they take towards that role is calculated. So from the education to the organizations that they support to the way they conduct themselves, all of that is calculated. So I have a problem with the way you know, I, if if I'm not happy with the way you've conducted yourself in the past, and um, I'm not going to say be happy with just you being then the 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 president just because you've decided or somebody has decided on your behalf that you you're the right candidate. Um, again, so who do I think would be the best candidate? Given, I, you know, the first time when uh, Pumzile. Um, became the deputy I thought that she was a little inexperienced but again it was still she was young um, and I guess she was also the deputy but I think she's doing great work at UN Women and it's also I mean she's older now she's got a PhD she's um, dealing with issues that are global she's interacting with people from all over the world and tackling real tough issues I think that she's gotten enough a lot of training in terms of um conduct how do you conduct yourself talking to people being influential i i think that she wouldn't make a bad one but again we have so many issues here domestically that require a lot and a smart president or a smart candidate is somebody who will not embarrass us will steer the ship but at the same time is aware of their weaknesses and will get the Best people around uh, themselves. So if if it's Pumzilem Lamunuka, but she's not a hundred percent the person, I think that she exudes a lot of what a leadership is, and she's she's got a you know great mind, but she needs very strong ministers to make sure that we don't go um, we don't decelerate as an economy or economic growth that the the ship is steered in the right direction. I'm going to ask you your opinion on the following. First up, Zimbabwe. Whew. It's it's been an interesting one to just to 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 follow. Again, I'm very skeptical of people who've both here and in Zimbabwe, actually everywhere in the world, where you haven't stood up against the rot, the political rot. You've been there, enjoyed it and watched. 
and supported it. And then suddenly it doesn't work for you. You've got your own ambitions and you want the sitting president to go. So I'm not, I'm, I, you know, I'm not more, the fact that they want Mugabe to go is one thing, but who's going to take over? And given how much decline the, the, the country has experienced, you want somebody to turn it around. And that person needs to be extremely strong, a leader, somebody who's supported on the ground, somebody who's trusted, somebody who has their hearts in the right place, and that is uh, dedicated to the people of Zimbabwe. And I'm not getting this, that from um, you know, the, uh, the deputy president or the, the Emerson um, who was removed. So I'm very worried. Bafana Bafana, I ask because you tweeted, is there a correlation between our football <laughs> economy and politics? And is the economy greater than politics? <laughs> so, you know, Bafana Bafana is disappointing. And I just think that we came from such a, the reason I tweeted that because we were such a great team, football team. Back in the day, during Mandela's time and Tabumbeki's first term, we were winning the Africa Cup of Nations. And then the second time we were, we were in this final and then we were in the semi-final and then we were nowhere in the, you know, competition. Then we couldn't even qualify. Um, same with the, you know, World Cup. It was, it's a little di- bit different, but, um, I just think that, we're not doing the right things. We're not putting enough training. We're not, maybe the, our guys are not dedicated. Sometimes I just think that, hey, maybe we're good at badminton. <laughs> and, you know, maybe we need to just focus on something else than soccer. But maybe soccer is not our thing and it's okay. Um, yeah. Your opinion on nationalization of banks and mines? Um, I, I don't think that... Banks should be nationalized. I think that actually there's a lot of talk on it and it's wasted talk and energy. I think that in future banks will be the bricks and mortar banks will, um, will not exist. I think that we'll be using our phones to bank. I don't know how many people have actually walked inside a bank in the past, I don't know, year, six months to do any transaction because you can all do it on your bank, on your phone and online. Um, so I don't think it's important for our country to have an, a nation, to nationalize banks. And besides, banks are privately owned. So why are you taking, you know, something that belongs to someone else and then nationalizing it? Um, uh, the other one is? The other one is mines. Mines. Again, mines are underperforming. They're very expensive to run. Very. They need a lot of um, uh, capex which we don't have as a country. So to adopt something that is you're basically throwing a lot of money in the dark and hoping for a diamond is a waste of money. As a taxpayer, I don't think that is a good way of utilizing my funds. What is your advice to women who say, I am too pretty for school or I'm too pretty for a J-O-B? I think, you know, pretty, pretty subjective. And pretty fades. And you're pretty for a moment. And you'd be endorsed by your looks by a couple of people. And then what happens when you grow up and you're not the conventional pretty? And then you have to look for a job. Hmm. Profound. 
Now tell me, are you available as a mentor for a girl to shadow you for a day? And if so, can they contact me for a connection? Or yeah. are you okay with them reaching out to you via social media? Definitely. Definitely. Like take a girl child to work, for yeah. example. I do that quite a bit. Okay. Of all your achievements and accolades, and I know there's so many of them, and I know you value each and every one of them. If you could, or if a family member could, as a way of paying tribute to to you, what would be engraved on your tombstone? Um, firstly, I don't want a tombstone. I want my ashes. To, I want to be cremated. My ashes to be thrown in the sea, because I don't know what happens with that land. Maybe next thing, you know, with people wanting land, my grave will be in somebody's property as part of the bathroom. Um, but I'd like, if I had, I would, she lived her life beautifully. Hmm, simple as that. Yeah. I like that. I know you have ambitions to enter public office. Yeah. Would you consider so, running for presidency? Never. Why I not? did when I was younger. So I always thought I'm going to be the president. And I guess I'd said this when Nelson Mandela was the president because it seemed very attractive and you changed lives and he made people happy and smile and I guess I was very idealistic. Not understanding what uh, it entails to be a president. I think that uh, it will take a lot out of me. I, You're constantly tested and I don't think that's the life that I want to live. You're constantly, whether, whether you, and you're constantly criticized. Uh, and I look at Obama who I also, he's like my idol, but he was never good enough for everyone. And when he was doing something good, he was never good enough. Um, and I don't know if I'm, if I'm cut out for that. I know you enjoy traveling and yeah. exploring the world. And I know you Definitely. believe strongly that traveling is the best education. Yeah. One city you would never visit again. And one city that's a must, must visit. Ooh, I don't have a city that I wouldn't visit again. I loved every place that I've traveled, even the challenges, even, I mean, I've learned so much. Um, and, you know, as an economist, it's weird because, like I said earlier, I'm not, I'm being an economist as my profession, but at the same time, it's carved who you are, at least it's carved who I am. So I often get into a country and I think, oh, wow, the housing is like this and the poverty level is like this and why do they do this here and what happened to the development and they're a rich country, but where's the money? So you kind of look at things from a lens of an economist. Um, so I'd, I wouldn't, every country I've been to, I'd go there again. One country that, one city that stands out for me is Cartagena in Colombia. Uh-huh. I loved it. It's just such a, you know, you know when you think of a place and you just smile. Maybe I was very happy when I was there. Um, the streets are, you know, cobble roads, so there's no cars. And um, especially in the old city, there all the houses are different, very well painted in different colors. So you can actually stand against a wall and it makes the perfect picture. Um, the food was lovely. The people, beautiful. So that's one place that I really think it's, yeah. It stands out. Then my favorite, favorite all-time city in the world. If I move to New York, I don't think I'll ever come back. Just mm-hmm. warning. Yeah, it's my okay. ultimate favorite. Lastly, you tweeted, former st- 
statistician, Ooh, it's a mouthful, general, Palilu Hotla, says 60% of men claim to be married versus 30% of women. Does this mean women have left their men without telling them? Yeah, <laughs> my cheats will get me in trouble. <laughs> no, but it was an interesting one because I'm thinking, how do you, men claim, firstly, there are more women than men. And 60% of women cl- men claim that they are married. Then what happens? Who are they married to? Mm. So, and usually, I don't know. From my experience, men always, even those who are married, don't always want to talk about the fact that they're married. They present themselves as being single. So I just thought that was a very interesting statistic. Mm, I, I love your social media interaction. I mean, you, you, you crack me up. I mean, you, like I said, you're a breath of fresh air. <laughs> Dr. Tabi Leoka, it was an honor having you on the opinion booth. Thank you so much. It's lovely being here finally. And it's always nice to be interviewed by someone you know. I know, I know. That's uh, that's why I'm like, oh, no, I know her. You know, I, I just gave her a call and she agreed to be my guest. You know, that's how I roll. People in high places, you know, <laughs> levels. <laughs> now I'm name dropping, right? My humble opinion, after all, this is the opinion booth. If I had a daughter, I'd hope and pray she chooses you as someone to look up to as a mentor and role model. Women of your caliber should be celebrated and that's why you're here you're an exceptional human being thank you and i'm truly honored to have met your kind in my lifetime i'm humbled i'm, I'm, I'm tearing up now <laughs> you are inspiration personified and people who have the opportunity to be in your circle who don't embrace or acknowledge the brilliance that you are it, it would be such a great p- uh, pity because often we celebrate mediocrity we do. Someone like you, you should be the person that gets millions of followers because you've got so much to offer the world. In the words of Marilyn Ferguson, achievers have an enabling attitude, realism, and a conviction that they themselves were the laboratory of innovation. Their ability to change themselves is central to their success. They have learned to conserve their energy by minimizing the time spent in regret or complaint. Every event is a lesson to them. Every person, a teacher, aspire to inspire before you expire. Oh, thank you. This is cliffcentral.com.